I don't know why I can't talk today. Hello and welcome to episode 17 of Double Reel, the podcast that brings support and comfort to film nerds around the world. It's September 2021 and the summer is over, not that we had much of a summer in the first place. As the colder weather approaches, we're here to keep your spirits up with a generous helping of cinematic content. My name's James Adamson and I'm an ordinary member of the public with no standing in the media or the film industry. What I do have is a geeky love of film and obscure stories from the world of cinema and a lot of opinions. Joining me on the podcast is my co-host, also called James Adamson. Welcome, James. Thank you very much for that lovely introduction. Fresh off of a very surreal and bizarre trip to Perth, but happy to be back to somewhat normality. For uh, for our international viewers, that is Perth in Scotland, not Perth in Australia, although he has gone probably further away from civilization on that particular route. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We aim to provide an old-school film-goer's experience. This is the podcast equivalent of the monthly film magazines you used to buy in the newsagent, packed with a range of features from the world of film. Each episode is divided into two reels, with an intermission so you can refuel and refresh before you tackle the second half. If you want to comment on the podcast or with your thoughts on the world of cinema generally, you can reach us on Twitter on at filmanorak 73 or search for Double Real Film Podcast, which should take you to our profile. There's also an Instagram called Double Real Podcast and a Double Real Podcast Facebook page for you to follow if you're that way inclined. Here's what's coming up in episode 17. First up, there's a roundup of a month in the life of two busy film nerds with some film news, a look at how we're living up to our film-related resolutions for 2021, and a look at some of the notable films we watched since the last episode. Then it's time for Classics and Recommended, where we try to get away from an endless diet of TV repeats and instead get around to something from our backlog of great films we haven't seen yet. This month we're going with a listener request and covering My Cousin Vinny, the much-loved courtroom comedy from 1992. Our hidden gem feature draws your attention to a lesser-known film that deserves a wider audience, which this month is Norwegian horror comedy Troll Hunter. Then we turn to the one that got away and look at a tall tale of a potentially great film a top director tried and failed to bring to the big screen. For episode 17, we're looking at Michael Mann's unrealised ancient Greek epic, Gates of Fire. We close the first reel of this episode with the remake Hate Watch, which this month features Rebecca, the ambitious 2020 version of the Hitchcock classic. After the intermission, the second reel of this episode will feature the big conversation in which the Adamsons tackle a topic from the film world in more detail. In episode 17, we discuss the worst films ever made by some of our favourite directors. But first, some messages from listeners, aka the podcast magazine letters page. People have got in touch on the socials regarding some of the month's features, as they do. On our Year of the Carpenter entry, Big Trouble in Little China, Brian says, one of my favourites. I have a poster signed by James Hong, plus the actors who played Lightning and Rain. You lucky duck, Brian. Brandy says, such a fun film. On our classic My Cousin Vinny, Eric says, one of the more accurate films set in a courtroom. I watched it in law school and often reference it when, when advising clients, which is amazing to hear. Uh, huh. Charlie, Matt and Beverly also gave it some love. On our hidden gem, Braden says, uh, love, love, love this movie. Nate says, awesome, and says he's, he's done his own crowdfunded film that's kind of a tribute to it called Slain Deer, Buck to the Future, which sounds intriguing. Uh, John writes in about I Want That Got Away, Michael Mann's Gates of Fire. He says, 300 was a great film. There's no need for another version of this story. Well, we'll try to change your mind, John. On our remake, Hate Watch, uh, Rebecca Joslyn wrote, I liked it, slower pace than the original and different ending, which I liked. Most other people weren't keen or preferred the original, while Ursula writes, Army Hammer is a complete douchebag, so I refuse to watch this. Fair enough. We also got some comments on our big conversation topic, Worst Films by Great Directors, but we're going to save those for the actual discussion on Reel 2. Thanks, as always, for your comments. They all get read, even though there isn't time to read them all out. Now, on with the podcast.
now for our regular roundup of a month in the life of two busy film nerds. We look at any major film news that's breaking this month and how we've been getting on fitting movie watching with our busy, exciting lives. As well as that, at the start of the year, we made some film-related New Year's resolutions for 2021, and we'll be checking in on whether we've managed to keep them up. Before that, I wanted to mention something that struck me this past month and reminded me why we do this podcast. Uh, I got a computerized notification from somewhere, could have been Netflix or imdb.com, which said, because you watch Tenet, you might like Inception. And I posted about this on the socials with the title, No Shit Algorithm, because how many people are at a point in their lives where they've watched Tenet but never heard of this other film called Inception? Which is just a sarca reaction at the time, but it got me thinking. So much of what we watch these days, or at least have shoved under our noses on the web and streaming services, is content being pushed on us by the algorithm. This is one of the worst aspects of the digital world because there's no variety. The content you see is either what some advertiser is trying to promote to you or just more of the same of what you've already watched. You know, this doesn't lead to varied and diverse films, uh, you know, for people to watch. The world of film has so many amazing stories and experiences for you to discover, and the algorithm turns it into something like your Facebook feed, where the same things and same stories get repeated and replicated over and over, or a radio station that only plays the same 20 songs every day. When I was younger, there were many other ways to find out about films. Your local video shop was usually run by a film nerd who would recommend all sorts of gems for you and have interesting titles on the shelves. The TV had old classics on on a Sunday afternoon, and series like Movie Drone on the BBC, where a proper film buff would introduce a different film you'd never heard of every week. So I just wanted to lay this out as our manifesto on Double Reel. We had a little statement on the first episode of what we're trying to do, but the podcast has moved on considerably since then. We've got some new listeners, so now's a good time. Here on Double Reel, we can't guarantee that every film we talk about is going to be a true classic or your new favourite. You might not even like some of them. But we can guarantee that through our love of films, we will introduce you to as wide a range of films as possible, with lots of titles you haven't heard of or haven't watched. And unlike the algorithm, these are films we've seen and collected and thought about and want to tell you about for no reason other than to share some cool stuff that we hope you like. We promise to find you something new or different to check out, and here and there you'll find a new film that you will end up loving that you would have missed otherwise. Just using the last episode as an example, we talked about or at least mentioned over 90 films, old and new, different genres, that you would not hear about if you only looked at what our digital overlords are trying to spoon-feed you. So we hope that this episode and all future episodes will contain some film somewhere that you will discover and love or inspire you to go looking for something new and different to watch for a richer film experience. And that's what we hope to give you on Double Reel. So preaching over with, let's, uh, like let's hit the news. Sunday. I'm going to go punch somebody now. What the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> I, I just wanted to lay it out. I just wanted our passion to shine through. We live so and die for that inch. Hooah! <laughs> <laughs> I know it's the wrong film, but... Yeah, this is what like, Al Pacino does when he's had a drink. Um, all right, let's hit the news. What uh, what news this month has uh, caught your eye, James? Uh, not really news news, but film premieres are all over the gaff. Um, yeah. Um, just stuff like uh, Dune's obviously a way to come out or has come out... Um, what other film premieres? Just more James Bond stuff, I think, because I've been to the cinema. There's been actual. Yeah, you start to see what's on its way, aren't you? Yeah. Um, and in Notre Dame, are actually catching my eye per se. They're all. Well, I've I've got a couple. Um, I've noticed that Top Gun Maverick has been delayed again, uh, and uh, that's that's been pushed back possibly into 2022. Is uh, that not already filmed though? 
Yeah, it's already filmed. It was going to come out last year, oh. I think, and it got delayed to now, and it's now being delayed again. Why? I think it's about COVID concerns. I think there's been a surge in infections in the US. Okay. And uh, th- that same news story said that the studios were reviewing their release strategy for some of the other films like Bond, which might mean, I don't know, streaming in some territories for Bond. Maybe in America, there seems to be they're doing a lot of that over there. Um, sticking to Tom Cruise, Tom Cruise got his car stolen in Birmingham while filming. And then got it back immediately. <laughs> well, that's the thing. I, I like to imagine that in, in, in this incident, he was chasing after the thieves and then holding onto the top of the car and the car thief thinks he's getting away, and then he sees like just the uh, the the fro- the uh, the condensation of Tom Cruise's breath in his wing mirror. No, I think it'd be more of the threat of getting bum raped by one of the fucking Scientologist aliens um, <laughs> that would make me give the car back. Yeah, there's probably one sitting in the. Uh, it's like an assault in Precinct Thirteen. They drive the car away, and one of the cult members is actually sitting in the back seat and just pops up and, and just starts floating, just like yeah, you yeah. fuck now, boy. Um, yeah. But yeah, any uh, other, news? other than that, um, Francis Ford Coppola is apparently finally going to start production on uh, Megalopolis. This is a passion project of his that he's been trying to do for almost 30 years. It's actually a candidate for a future one that got away feature because no one thought it was ever going to get made. Um, some of the actors involved are James Kahn, Oscar Isaac, Forrest Whitaker, Kate Blanchett, John Voight, Zendaya, Michelle Pfeiffer, Jessica Lange. Um, it's a you know, I think some of those are, you know, already agreed and some of them are in talks. But, it, I mean, it sounds interesting. It, it, I think this one's 50-50 whether it ever gets made, even now. Um, but it's interesting when someone like Coppola, you know, is trying to get one of his, you know, most over-ambitious projects ever on, onto the screen. We have to see if that uh, actually transpires. And this is all the news that I seem to have missed. But um, George Miller's next film in the Mad Max universe is going ahead, and it's going to be a prequel to the story of Furiosa. Yes, and it's Anya Taylor-Joy from That's right. Queen's Gambit. Gambit sorry. Yeah, which, I mean, she's a really interesting actress. So, you know, and obviously, you know, if they're doing her as a younger younger character, that makes sense. Um, I think Charlie Storm is a little disappointed that she's not going to, you know, necessarily be playing Furiosa again. Um, maybe there'll be a, a, a Furiosa-only sequel in future that she can do. Um, they're also talking about another Mad Max film, you know, in the, the main series with Tom Hardy, The Wasteland, but that's going to come after Furiosa, assuming it goes ahead. Um, the Furiosa prequel that's going to be released next year or 2023, sort of depending on how the production goes. It also has Yahya Abdul-Mateen II in it, currently in Candyman, and Chris Hemsworth. Um, I, I, I mean, that's got some announcements about, you know, people who've joined the cast this month, but I kind of missed that news. I think that that news may be from, from last year and I just missed it. So apologies, listeners, if I'm telling you what you already know. Um, so apart from that, yeah, you're right, James, it is about what's out or what's coming out. Um, what, uh, yeah, a couple of films that caught my eye, shout out, if you, shout out any other films that catch your eye that are coming out, mate. Shang-Chi is out now, um, sort of getting reasonable reviews, I think. Um, uh, and seems to have done quite well at the box office so far. Um, Respect, the um, Aretha Franklin story starring Jennifer Hudson, is uh, out on the 10th of September. So by the time this is in your earphones, that will already be out. You might already uh, be planning to go and see it. Likewise, Cop Shop, which is a some sort of comedy action cop thing with Jared Butler, which looks absolute rubbish, but it's been heavily advertised. I can't get away from it. So uh, so that's coming out. Um more Nick Cage, Prisoners of the Ghostland. Uh, Many Saints of Newark, which is the Sopranos prequel. 
Uh, obviously, Bond is coming out on the 30th of September. We're all hoping that that, uh, that, that uh, release date sticks. And the Green Knight now has a UK release date of the 24th of September, but it's also going to be simultaneously available to stream on Amazon Prime. Those are the, the new films that caught my eye. Anything catch your eye, mate? Um, I haven't seen trailers for any of them apart from the um, Shang-Chi one because I went to the cinema last week to see Free Guy and um, that had sort of like kind of trailers related to that. So there was Shang-Chi, there was Eternals. Uh, there's the new Spider-Man trailer coming out um, as well with them. Um, hmm. It seems like there's a kind of multiverse kind of vibe going on. Um, but yeah, no, I went to see Free Guy at the cinema, which was, I was kind of let down by it. I'm not going to lie. Really? Oh, um, that's a shame. It's not as, you know, belly laugh as, you know, Deadpool. It didn't make me lose my, you know, my mind with laughter. It's got some funny moments and it's kind of like an interesting discussion into, you know, the video game industry, which it, it does mm. poke a lot of fun at, but um, it's a bit. It's, it's a, it basically descends into a big fucking rom com, which was a bit shit. Um, like it's got very. It, it ends like any like of the Notebook or any of those films kind of would with like the soppy ball. It's kind of ending, which was a bit disappointing for me. But I mean, if you're gonna do a, if you're gonna do something about a video game, obviously you know we have said a few times you should always, you know, it's sometimes you, you don't like a film because it's not the film you were expecting to see, right? And that's, if the director was trying to do something else, that's just tough luck, really. But you would think that if you're doing a video game, and it's isn't, it's, it's a quite a violent video game, isn't it? Because he plays a, a non-playing character who's constantly being robbed because it's he works in the bank and the bank's always being robbed. It's like, you know, GTA kind of... It's basically you know, GTA. It's, it's not called GTA, but it's called... Uh... Something I can't remember the name of the game, but it is GTA. Basically, there's loads of people that the people that wear the sunglasses are basically the people that are playing the game, and then there's the mm-hmm. people that don't wear the sunglasses but are still played by like famous actors and stuff like that. Are the uh, NPC Scott's little rel? Is that his name, Howry? From Get Out, you know, um, the friend from Get Out, uh, the oh, the TSA guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's uh, he's in it. Uh, he's good, but it's just. Uh, yeah, well, just kind of I, I guess you know. It's. I mean, I would have thought that if you're gonna if you're gonna do a video, a film about a video game, a violent video game, and you've got Ryan Reynolds with that kind of sort of slightly twisted humour that he gets, if you do the rom com side, it's going to be you know in the midst of all the violence. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, he doesn't really play that in this film. There's not really. Yeah. Yeah, there's some well. jokes like there's one line. Spoiler alert turn off for the next 10 seconds where he goes into Jodie Comer's house and he says, wow, I love your hand grenades and stuff like that. And it's kind of like a little kind of chuckle and things like mm-hmm. that. But there was nothing in it that made me properly lose mm-hmm. my mind, but it was, it was, it wasn't terrible. It just, it wasn't the film I actually expected. Yeah. That's the way it goes. In terms of films, did you go to see anything else at the cinema this month, mate? Uh, no. I well, I, I went to see the suicide squad, um, partly on your recommendation and partly because I, you know, saw the trailer uh, and thought it was going to be fun. Yeah, I really liked it. I thought it was really good. Um, pretty much echo everything you said about it, mate. It was really good. It was a you know, very clever ensemble. I think what I, partly what I liked about the ensemble is that they had loads of characters at the start, and you really weren't sure which characters you were going to end up watching for the rest of the film. It yeah. is what I'm trying to say without without spoilers, because obviously there's a lot of ca- you know chaos and carnage at the start. Um, there's uh, yeah, the tone of it was just spot on. That you know, the mixture of kind of humor sort of darkness and and action i thought was all was all spot on i think uh, dc 
chose well, chose wisely in getting James Gunn in to do that. And, you know, long may that sort of thing continue. And... Yeah, yeah. And, and obviously, uh, Sylvester Stallone giving an, a career best performance as King Shark. Uh, it was very good. <laughs> I also went to see the new Candyman film. Uh, yeah, I've seen people talk about that, but I've not actually... Yes, I mean, I went to see it because I'm, a, you know, I like the original. I'm a fan of the writer Clive Barker that the original film is based on, and I thought, yeah, go on. It's also it's produced and co-written by Jordan Peele. Although to be, you know, m- to be clear, this is directed and co-written by Nia DaCosta, and it's her film. You know, say so that's from the beginning. But obviously, if Jordan Peele is given something, his seal of approval and is supporting it, you 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 hope that that's going to be, you know, uh, you know, uh, he'll have picked a good director and that it'll all be, you know, uh, good stuff. So. I went to see it, and unfortunately, I was a little bit disappointed with it. Really, really. Oh. Um, I mean, on online is full of sort of alt right assholes giving it one out of ten for being too woke and political and too preoccupied with racial issues, um, which is horseshit. I mean, it's ironic that some of those people are saying they love the original film and all of this woke stuff is ruined to the new film, given that the first film was about exactly all of those things. Right, <laughs> the first film is all about like how the you know. Uh, the the real terror and the real horror is the way black people have been and are being treated in a modern American society. So it's like, well, you know, you love the first film, but you hate a film that's about all of those things. They're fucking idiots. Um, but the reason the film's disappointing, I think, is that, um, I mean, it, it, it was quite promising because they've sort of hooked into the original, pun intended, hooked into the original mythology of, of the, the first film. Um, so it's a continuation of the story. It's 30 years later and some of the things that happened in the previous film come back to haunt everybody now. And as you know, without, I don't want to give too many spoilers away, but it, it's a, it's a continuation of the other story, but adding new elements. Um, and it's quite good that, you know, the gentrification of an old, um, sort of ghetto, black ghetto, you know, has, you know, changed it, you know, un- beyond recognition and displaced all of the, you know, the poor ordinary people who used to live there, but there's a little bit of the old ghetto and a little bit of the old Candyman terror left behind. Um, but a new main character who finds himself drawn to, to all of that. All the elements are there for it to be really successful, but, well, A, it wasn't scary, unfortunately. It just didn't work as a horror film. And they didn't quite manage to pull together all the elements of that story to make it work. There's a lot of people telling you what's happened or telling you what's happening instead of showing you what's happening. So, uh, you know, I don't want to compare it to, too much, you know, old film versus new film, but in, in the old film, you see why the main character is drawn into this. You can see how the main character is feeling and you can see the, the way the, the atmosphere is building up around, around the main character. In this film, it's, it's actually a lot more talky and it's going, this has happened and that's why this has happened. It's like, don't fucking explain it to me, mate. Show me. It's a film, right? Um. So, I mean, it wasn't terrible, and it's well shot. Near DaCosta knows how to put together a scene. Um, there are some moments that are pretty good, um, but it's just not it's not quite got the same edge as the first film. A lot of the characters are from the art world, and there's a few kind of scenes about how poncy the art world is. I mean, I don't care. You know, the first film was about you know regular people living in a in a in a shithole, and 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 what that does to them and how that makes them feel and I've, it's a lot easier to identify with ordinary people living a shit life and trying to do their best than it is to live with sort of poncy people looking at sculptures while they drink a glass of champagne do you know what i mean um 
But, you know, look, it's, it's been well received by a lot of people. It's doing quite well at the box office, so fair play. But, I mean, the message, what the film's trying to say, I completely agree with. I just don't think it quite hangs together the way it's meant to be as a film. And it's a horror film and it's not scary enough, which is kind of a, a fundamental Fun, yeah. sort of stumbling block. But, um, you know, I mean, it's not a terrible film. And there's some good, you know, the actors are good. There are some good things in it. Um, just a little disappointing. As Speaking as someone who was fully on board with the film's message and really ready to enjoy it, I just came away going, oh, was I was hoping bit? for more. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah, I mean, that's... That's my cinema going. I'm not sorry I went to see it. I think it's good to, you know, it's good to support a new film and someone try. You know, it, look, I'm glad someone. Again, this is, uh, you know, this is, you know, my my fandom of Mark Kermode. He always says he'd rather see someone try something interesting and fail than someone try the same old shit. You know, however well they succeed. You know, so fair play to them, but didn't 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 work for me. I'm afraid. Oh, well. At least you got to go and do something normal. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so. In terms of that's the films that are out, that's the news. And what we always do in our roundup now is talk about our resolutions for the year. Uh, at the start of uh, 2021, we said these were our New Year's resolutions in the world of film, and uh, we would track month by month how we how we got on. So, um, James, your resolution is to watch more films and instead of just watching too, too many TV shows. Um, not that there's anything wrong with TV shows. We, we are living in an era where there's some amazing telly out there. But um, how have you done in watching films? Uh, yeah, so when – so obviously, I, we, I don't know if the listeners know, but I was obviously down with my sister to see you uh, from Scotland, to see you uh, down in England. So we watched um, all the films – well, apart from one, we watched uh, most of the films for this month's episode together. But yeah. um, I also went and visited um, Granny and Grandad. Um, yeah. that while I was down there so they had loads of films on so I watched them as well um, which was what did we watch we watched we watched a, like a TV miniseries Sleepers with Nigel Havers um, about sleeper agents oh yeah is, that's a, that's a, that's quite fun that is I remember that from yeah. years ago and then we watched Mrs. Robinson Presents um, the Judy Dench film about the uh, kind of like the I, I don't even know how to describe it, like a kind of cabaret show back in World yeah World yeah World I've, not, I've not seen it but I've heard of it what was it like it's actually it's it's a good laugh. It's uh, it's got a really na- it's got a really good cast actually. Um, what else? Yeah, uh, I feel like I'm missing another film that they they put on the Robin Hood that has Uma Thurman in it as Maid Marian. Oh yeah, that came out the same year as the Kevin Costner version, but yeah. it's a lot more it's a lot more grounded in the kind of social differences between the the poor Saxons and the ruling class Normans, isn't it? It doesn't quite yeah. It's, it's, better, more, it's better than the it's Kevin a more, it's a more, it's a more down to earth version, isn't it? It's better than the Kevin Costner one, I'd say. Yeah. And then I feel like I'm missing another film that we watched. But we watched plenty of films, and then out with that little trip down to England, I watched Unbroken, the um, the film, the story about Louis Zamperini played Jack O'Connell. Um, well, that's that's the film that Angelina Jolie directed, isn't it? Her, it was her debut. It was, I think it's a really good story, it's a really good film, but I think they miscast the bad, the bad in it. They, mis- they cast some Japanese kind of musician model kind of guy, and I don't think he worked any other talented Japanese actor would have worked in the role in my opinion but I just didn't hmm. for me I just didn't get on board with it um, he is trying his best uh, people have tried that in the past actually there's an interesting sort of curiosity of a film from the 80s called Merry Christmas Mr. Lawrence um, which I know you wouldn't watch because it's got David Bowie in it but David Bowie plays a, a prisoner of war he plays a prisoner of war but the um, the sort of antagonist in it and they start having a very sort of complex relationship in which the you know the the, the 
cracks appear in the traditional kind of samurai Japanese kind of 1930s and 40s fascist view of their enemies. Um, and it was uh, Ryuchi Sakamoto, I think his name is, who is a musician and also did some acting in it. So maybe they were trying to do the same thing by kind of um, picking someone like that. But as you say, it's not like they're short of decent actors that they could, uh, you know, who do it for a living that they can give the role to, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, did we watch any other films together with the stuff we said we'd watch with this? Trying to remember. I'm not sure we did. But no, plenty of films watched this month. Yeah, yeah, quite a few. I mean, it's, in, it's in, when you go down to my mum and dad's, or, you, you know, your, your granny and granddad's, as, as you would call them, uh, same people, obviously. Hmm. Um, I hope listeners are grateful for my explanation of how parents and grandparents work. Um, is that they've got a big film collection, and given half a chance, they'll grab something off the shelf and say, fancy watching that, which is, a, a, a you know, going back to our manifesto, that's it's a great way to beat the algorithm and, and find something you wouldn't otherwise have watched, you know? Yeah, no, totally. It's, it's a, some collection, a bizarre collection of films they've got there. You can go yeah, so, and my mum especially, too. she's got a wide sort of wide range of film tastes. Which, you can go which, from Caligula to you know the Harry Potter series and the Blink of an Eye. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, she, she's, I mean, she's, she's watched all sorts of kind of really cheesy TV movies that I've never heard of. But to be fair to her, she's also the person that showed me Rear Window and Vertigo for the first time. Um, you know, and was you know responsible for some important cornerstones of my film education. Um, yeah, well, that's yeah. It's a nice, it's a nice variety of films there. Um, so my resolutions, I had two. Uh, I think for next year I might only have the one resolution because uh, it does add you know things to do. But first, my first resolution was to <clears throat> dig out an old favourite that I love but haven't seen in years, just to just to get it watched again. Uh, and this month I watched uh, the Name of the Rose. Uh, not the recent uh, TV miniseries that they did of the same story with John Turturro, but the the film that they made of the same story back in the 1980s, 1986, with Sean Connery in the lead role. Um, uh, it's a bit obscure, that one. I mean, I had to – it's not really available to watch easily on any streaming service, and I had to buy a, the, a Blu-ray from Germany, I think, um, which fortunately <laughs> plays on, on British Blu-ray players. Uh, uh, but it's it's – I, I really loved it at the time. It was kind of a surprise hit back in the day. It's, re- it's really not a typical film for the mid-80s. It's a murder mystery set in a 14th century European monastery. It's based on a really dense book by an Italian political philosopher and has themes about the role and behaviour of the Catholic Church, its treatment of the poor, and its control of literature, art, and freedom of expression. But the reason it works is it's got this kind of dark, gothic, gory kind of murder mystery at the heart of it, and Sean Connery as a monk who also has a history as, as an investigator. Uh, the interesting thing about if you've got a history as an investigator and you're a, you work for the Catholic Church, that means the Inquisition, right? But he's a decent guy who fell out with the Inquisition. So you've got all sorts of tensions between characters and this really vivid kind of monastic world. Uh, and a really good early performance by Christian Slater. I think it was his film debut. It's not at all faithful to the original book. You, you need to watch the the John Turturro miniseries if you want more of what was in the original book. But it brings the medieval world really vivid, vividly to life, and it really still stands up after all these years. It also has an early role for Ron Perlman, um, who's a, a bit of a standout in a quite a strange role that he plays. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm glad I watched it again. It still stands up. Uh, I'm glad, glad, glad I did it. Um, my other uh, my other resolution for the uh, for the year 2021 is to make this year the year of the carpenter. As regular listeners will be aware by now, I resolve to make this year. Uh, a year in which I watch my 12 favourite John Carpenter films, uh, one a month in ascending order of their IMDb rating, so least well-regarded to most well-regarded, 
as we head towards the end of the year, we're getting to this uh, John Carpenter's best and most well-known films. And for September, we've arrived at Big Trouble in Little China. Now, this is definitely one of John Carpenter's best and most beloved films and was a mainstay of my film watching in the 1980s. It's probably his most rewatchable film, although some people might argue for Halloween or you know, maybe one or two others, but I think it's just one of those ones you can always put on any time and you have a great time and it cheers you up. It's sort of like the action film version of Galaxy Quest in that sense. It's yeah. just, you know, whatever mood you're in, you're in the mood for Big Trouble in Little China, if you see what I mean. Um, for those of you who aren't too familiar with it, it the story starts with Kurt Russell's loudmouth truck driver, Jack Burton, arriving in San Francisco's Chinatown to deliver his consignment of livestock. But it's not his story, and that's what's really clever about this film. He meets up with his friend, a Chinese-American small business owner in, 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 in the city called Wang Chi. He gets caught up in Wang's story. Wang's fiance um, is arriving at the airport, um, but is kidnapped there by people trafficking gangsters. And he has to go up against these scary guys to get her back. These gangsters are part of a bigger, much more powerful organized crime gang, and their leader is Lo Pan, the all-powerful crime boss who's feared by everyone in Chinatown. But in the story, Lopan is actually a sorcerer who's thousands of years old and wields terrifying power with magical henchmen and a lair full of strange phenomenon. Wang has to set out to fight Lopan with whoever will, will help him, um, which includes Jack and some other friends in the, the Chinatown area, um, get his fiance back and prevent Lopan from gaining so much power he threatens the world as we know it. So you start with you think you're going to have this story about this kind of bouncy kind of uh, Kurt Russell character. It quickly turns into actually the story of these uh, this long-standing dispute among Chinese people in Chinatown that Jack just gets caught up in, and he's um, and then it turns into a, this massive supernatural story. It's an absolute bundle of fun. Basically, what it was is that John Carpenter um, he brought a lot to it because he was a big fan of these Chinese fantasy martial arts films where you know people fight on wires and people aren't just good at fighting; they have magical powers. Um, it started out as a period Western in the original script. It was actually going to be set in the, the old West, um, but they thought it, it they, they ended up doing it in the present day instead and, and added a lot of kind of sorcery and stuff. But it's brilliant fun. Great special effects, martial arts fighting on wires for, for possibly the first time in, in a Hollywood film. City blocks going up in green flames, lots of snappy dialogue. Kurt Russell's great fun as Jack. Dennis Dunn, who hasn't done that many films, but he's really good as, as, as essentially the hero Wang. Lots of good supporting characters like Kim Cattrall as a wise-cracking lawyer. Victor Wong is the older Chinatown resident who helps the good guys out. And James Hong plays Lo Pan, and James Hong is amazing. Those of you who don't know James Hong, you'll have seen him in millions and millions of roles over the years. He's the uh, the grumpy um, uh, Chinese restaurant owner in uh, Big Bang Theory. He plays um, Jack Black's dad in Kung Fu Panda. <laughs> He's got a brilliant voice. He's absolutely amazing in this. Um Sadly, this film didn't do very well at the box office at the time because the studio executives, yes, them again, didn't really understand what to do with the film. I mean, it got a big budget and the film turned out exactly the way you would want it to. And then they sort of scratched their heads and went, oh, is this like Indiana Jones? What, what is this? Is this an action film? They just didn't know what to do with it. So they just fucking dropped it, didn't, didn't promote it. So it kind of sneaked out in a crowded summer, didn't get watched. And then when it got out on home video, people like me, who was the perfect age for it, we all went, oh, this is great. Let's watch this. And all they had to do to promote the film is tell people it was fucking coming out because it's bloody brilliant. Um, it's, you know, it's it's very, very clever and, and turns things on its head and that Kurt, Kurt Russell is, he's the man who thinks he's the hero, but he's actually the, the sort of the funny sidekick. Um, but it's all in great spirit. He's, he's, he's portrayed as brave and loyal, but it's not actually his film. 
Um, it's weird because it had accusations of racism when it was being made because I think there'd been a couple of films that were like Year of the Dragon before that that had been really quite racist in their depiction of Chinatown. And then when someone said, oh, you can have an action film that portrays Chinatown as full of monsters and kind of evil sorcerers, what the fuck are you up to? So the people who made the film invited some activist groups and Chinatown residents to see the script and what they were doing. And they went, oh, actually, that's quite good. You crack on. Um, so it should have been a hit. It should have been great. Um, but it, um, again, it was let down by the studio, but it's been hugely influential since then. It's, um, uh, it, it's basically set the template for the action comedy as we know it. Any action comedy with fantasy elements that's come out in the last 30 years owes a huge debt to this film, and, and you know we'll, we'll come to that. Um, fun facts, I said it was originally going to be a period Western featuring Chinese characters. Um, Jackie Chan was actually going to play the lead role of Wang, but uh, he turned it down. But yeah. he later did Shanghai Noon, which is a period Western featuring Chinese characters. So he he got caught up in it anyway. The you know he he, he finally Except was he was, was, in was a given a role. It's a shitter film because it's own Yeah, that's the way it goes. Western, yeah. yeah. I mean, I love Jackie Chan, so I'd kind of loved him to be in this film. But I think it works because Jackie Chan's his English is okay, but Dennis Dunn, who plays Wang, is a Chinese American. He's American. It, he fits the character better that way. The stuntman on, on wires is now much more of a mainstay in films, and um, it's probably the first time a Hollywood film incorporated these elements from Asian, Asian cinema. So it's it's a minor milestone, and it's just a terrific film in its own right. Um, as always, um, I always tell you that if you want to get into this film or any other John Carpenter film in more detail, uh, I recommend you listen to the excellent podcast Masters of Carpentry, which breaks down each film in its own full episode. Now, this film more or less invented the modern Hollywood action comedy, and all sorts of films have been influenced by it. So I'm going to do my regular impromptu top 10 in honor of this uh, with the top 10 films uh, influenced by Big Trouble in Little China. There's actually thousands of films been influenced by it, but these are 10 that I'd like to pick out. Uh, in no particular order, Thor Ragnarok. Uh, Taika Waititi came right out and said that he was heavily influenced by this. Uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles um, has a character based on uh, one of one of the characters in this film. Uh, From Dust Till Dawn, uh, the Matrix, because that kind of wire fighting and, and you know uh, hidden worlds uh, couldn't exist without uh, Big Trouble in Little China. Uh, Scream, with its kind of knowing nods to, to the way films work. Uh, Scott Pilgrim versus the World, uh, The Mummy, the 1999 version. Shanghai Noon, even though it's not very good. Uh, Kick-Ass uh, and uh, Mortal Kombat, although that is more the video game uh, than the film. Um I haven't put Death Proof in this because I don't like Death Proof, but that's also hugely influenced by um, this film. Uh, Jack Burton's T-shirt from this film is hanging on the wall in the bar scene, and Kurt Russell's stuntman character has shades of that character in the way he speaks. Uh, so that's like a almost honourable mention. But that's my impromptu top ten. That's the Year of the Carpenter entry, and that's our roundup. Now for the classics and recommended feature, where we try and watch something from our backlog of great films instead of the endless movie repeats rotating on TV. Our watch list includes films one or both of us hasn't seen before, and recommendations from you, the audience. Committing to do so for this feature has helped break the mental block around some of these films. I mean, we got to see and share our thoughts on a wide range of films, from David Cronenberg's controversial crash to modern heist western Hell or High Water. We have a growing list of other films to do for this feature as we keep adding films we haven't seen yet and from the steady stream of audience recommendations, including Wages of Fear, Inherent Vice, The Assassin, Spike Lee's 25th Hour, Departures, Short Bus, 
A Tale of Two Sisters, The City of Lost Children, Under the Skin, Primer, Alphaville, Boyhood, The Good, The Bad, The Weird, No Way Out, My Cousin Vinny, Mississippi Burning, Sea of Love, Zed, Touch of Evil, and The Hitchhiker. This month, we're responding to a listener campaign, which has been nothing short of intermittent, demanding we cover this film. So, Erin, this is for you. Our classics and recommended for episode 17 is a surprise hit from 1992, which James hasn't seen, a mix of fish-out-of-water comedy and courtroom drama, My Cousin Vinny. So, James, as I said, this is something that a listener to the podcast has kind of been, you know, on and off just saying, when are you going to do this? You know, you promised you were going to do this, so I, you know, decided to to bite the bullet and, and put it on. Um it's it's not something you were aware of, and it's a very '90s film. Uh, I thought it was interesting. We sat down to watch it together, and I uh, I thought it'd be interesting to see what you thought of it. Um, yeah. So I can't remember who it was. It wasn't yourself, but I remember someone saying that Marisa Tomei winning the Best Supporting Actress for this film was a bit of a weak weak Oscar that year. So I kind of went into it with that kind of expectation. I thought Marisa Tomei was actually quite good in the character she played. I thought she was entertaining, that kind of ditzy, New Jersey, New York kind of hairdresser that she literally plays. She reminds me exactly of in that episode of Brooklyn Nine-Nine where uh, Rosa has to go and get the information from that salon. Do you know, do you know what I yeah. mean? Yeah, exactly yeah. that kind of character. It's almost the exact same person. So, But I thought she was very good. Do I think it was an Oscar-winning performance? Maybe not. Maybe uh, we were looking at the other entries that year, and maybe Vanessa Redgrave could feel a bit hard done by. But it seemed like it was a bit of a quiet year. Yeah, year. I mean, there were some classic kind of Oscar films that year, like adaptations of uh, of of old classic novels. Um, you know, characters in uh, you know serious dramas going through much more uh, tortured uh, experiences, uh, and it's. It's not something that they normally do at the Oscars, is it, where they say this film was nice and it was funny and this character was really charming. That's essentially how she's, you know, as good as good as she is, it's not the sort of thing that normally wins Oscars. Not that you know it's kind of refreshing that they that they just didn't go, you know, if you compare it to the most recent Oscars where it was kind of weighed down by its own worthiness. But yeah, it's 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 a fairly lightweight film to be getting recognition at the big awards. Um, and didn't it win another Oscar? No, it uh, it won. Marisa Tomei won a couple of things at the Chicago Film Critics uh, Association Awards and uh, the well, the MTV Movie Awards, which is probably more at speed. Um, anyway, but no, that, 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 yeah, that's the point. The, the, it was it was oh. Like it was an okay performance. I don't think she was actually bad, but it's another one of those ones where you think, "Oh, that's a bit of a left field shout for the Oscar because they didn't get nominated for the Globe or the BAFTA or anything like that that year." But that does beside the point. I don't want to take away from relation to me because she is good. In it. I, I, I think she just, I think she just charmed the whole of Hollywood. I mean, yeah. people sort of everyone fell in love with her a little but bit that year. In that actual film, if you look at the film, I actually really enjoyed it. Joe Pesci is always good. Even when he's in, you know, Home Alone and stuff like that, you're always getting good value with Joe Pesci, and he's very good in this film. He plays he plays that kind of character who wants to do good but doesn't really have the kind of mannerisms to do. Not man, I don't know if mannerisms that really doesn't really have the kind of the nous. Maybe the nous is a, a better he's, way to yeah. Do. I mean, he's he's kind of learning as he goes. He's stumbling. His personal manner isn't what you'd expect from a lawyer. He's not smooth or anything that rubs people up the wrong way. And that combination of him fucking things up and winding people up while still being essentially a good-hearted guy yeah. is essentially what where a lot of it gets drawn from, isn't it? Yeah. And, yeah, this film is – it's it's a, do you know what's really good about it? It's a really easy watch. 
Yeah. There's nothing in it where you're like, oh, what the fuck am I trying to follow here? It's not Tenet. It's not anything like, um, you know, like um, like that, anything cerebral, you know, or like the Matrix. It, it, the whole thing's done with a really light bit, yeah. touch, isn't it? I mean, it's, I mean, interestingly enough, I mean, you could do a much more kind of dark version of this storyline. I mean, the basic story is two young guys are on a road trip across America before they go to college. After a relatively innocuous stop at a, um, what do they call it? A truck stop or a roadside shop? Gas stop, yeah. In Al- yeah, in Alabama. They're, they're arrested for murdering the guy on the counter and put on trial for murder. And it all seems hopeless. Uh, Ralph Macchio um, is one of the young guys. He calls upon his cousin Vinny, a newly qualified trial lawyer, to defend them. But his inexperience, uh, you know, keeps getting in the way. Um, can what a simple case, you know, and it's like a simple case of mistaken identity, but these guys could almost go to the electric chair. You could do a much more serious version of that story, couldn't you? Um, but what they've they've just managed to take that and just uh, put together this really kind of light, fun, uh, entertaining uh, kind of comedy treatment of the same storyline, you know? Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's a, it's a if it's a really it's a really good watch. Is that film like if you saw it on the telly and you hadn't seen it for a while, you'd be almost you know instantly drawn to it because you know oh remember how good it was the first time we saw it. it's always yeah, you don't yeah. have to concentrate too much can kind of on the background and i think that's it's important to have films like that because not every film you want to watch and not being able to speak to your your significant other or the people that you're with for you know the next tour because you can't really do that with an inception or with a like, yeah you've got to concentrate and yeah, yeah. take it seriously yeah and it, it's funny because it, the the way you've described watching that film when it comes on the telly is exactly how i've watched it quite a few times and which often means you kind of start a couple of minutes in. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And actually going, oh, here is how the film actually starts. Here is the very beginning. Here's the establishing shot. Here's the two guys in the car. You go, I've probably seen this film nine times, 90% of the times I've watched this film, I haven't caught that very, very early bit. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, because you're just... Because it's one of those films that you can just walk into at any point and go, all right, my cousin Vinny, I know where we are. Go. Yeah, no, I, I it was it was a really enjoyable film. It was, I think, it was it was just very well done. It didn't need, it didn't try yeah, and yeah. be too, you know. You could see that kind of couple just walking through, you know, that kind of weird um, mix of Joe Pesci and Marisa Tomei just kind of arguing and bickering with each other. You could, it was yeah. totally believable. It was sold really well. Um, and the, and the thing is, they've they've made those characters they're classic New Yorker characters, and you drop them in the middle of Alabama, right? Yeah, and you've got you've got some fish out of water comedy. To be fair, though, it did. It's 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 not like unkind about any of the characters. Do you know no. what I mean? They are, you know, they're brash New Yorkers, and they obviously poke fun at that. The people from Alabama, you know, live a very different life, and they poke fun at that. But they're not. Um, they're basically portrayed as basically decent, nice people, right? But you know, one or two of them are a bit kind of quirky. There's a, you know, there's lots of little jokes about wherever he goes to stay. There's something happening at five o'clock which wakes him up. You know, like the train going through or the whistle being blown at the local. Like factory, whatever the, it is, the booster kind of thing. <clears throat> yeah, it's blowing his mind that he can't get a good night's sleep. Um, the way he is is not, you know, it's just like a. It's, there's a bit of culture clash, um, and it's yeah. And I remember you saying, "Oh, Marissa, tell me I want to ask you for this." And it's kind of she has this big scene at the end where you kind of that. That's kind of her scene. Do you know what I mean? She kind of they basically hand the movie over to her for the final act. Um, yeah, but it's, it's yeah, it's a lot of fun. Um, I, th- I thought it was genuinely interesting because when I got that comment from one of the listeners, I actually looked this up. The guy who directed the film has a, a law degree wow. and went to the trouble of trying to make the courtroom stuff as realistic as possible. And it is true. Not only is this film used um, in in some law schools as going, this is what some this is what a courtroom case looks like, right? 
the the there's a scene in it where they basically are trying to test whether Marissa Tomei's character is qualified to be an expert witness, and the the discussion they have on whether she was qualified that anticipated a legal precedent that was set by the U.S. Supreme Court seven years later. Wow. So in all this funny, lighthearted stuff about this, that, and the other, which no, you wouldn't think was going to be, it's, it's not exactly like, looks like it's, it doesn't look like the sort of film that's kind of, you know, gone desperately hard on, on the realism. But as it turns out, this is praised as one of the most accurate Hollywood films about legal and courtroom procedure, which I thought was a lot of fun. And hearing someone say, not only did, did he watch it in law school when they were teaching him about how courtroom procedure works, he quotes the film to clients on a regular basis. Yeah. I thought, that's amazing. That's why it's so polished and well done. And such an, yeah. the thing is, law, law dramas can get a bit convoluted. It's what I didn't like about A Few Good Men. It felt like Tom, Tom Cruise was just talking and talking far too quickly in that film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's basically That's, that's Aaron Sorkin, isn't it? And that's bash, 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 bash. Yeah, it's not necessarily bad. It's just they're, they're throwing a lot of jargon at you, which makes it yeah, yeah. more cerebral. Not cerebral, but you know what I mean? It makes it more, you know concentrated well, it's, a little, it's, easy, it's easier to follow when you're watching a less experienced lawyer kind of getting his head around it as the case progresses do you yeah. know what i mean which is but, quite fun yeah but, and it's got it's got a bit of underdog with joe pesci kind of like on his first case it's got a bit of romantic comedy because he's promised marisa tome he'll marry her once he wins a case and it's been years and it's, it's just a lot of fun i mean i don't it they did lose their minds a little bit giving you know giving an oscar to this film you know, I don't really mind though because I think comedy is undervalued by the awards ceremonies most of the time. I think comedy is a lot harder to do than people give credit for. I mean, you think about you know best screenplay. How many how many how many screenplays are you know whatever they are are as good as a good comedy? I mean, how hard is good comedy to write? You know, this is Spinal Tap, nowhere near the Oscars when that came out. When Harry Met Sally, I mean, it was nominated. That's like a rare thing. Tropic Thunder. Were there many scripts better than Tropic Thunder in 2008? Because I don't think so. Life of Brian, Groundhog Day, Big Lebowski. And Big Lebowski's Dark not Knight. even nominated. For, yeah. But yeah, so, you know, because, you know, if, you know, including things like Dark Knight, genre films are have frequently been undervalued at yeah. the Oscars. So I, I kind of, I don't begrudge, um, you know, the the the, uh, the people, the makers of my cousin Mini getting some credit for doing a really nice job that not everyone could do. I mean, there's been plenty of serious actors have died on their ass trying to do comedy, you know? I mean, there are a lot of films that uh, deserve a um, deserve more credit than they get. So I don't, you know, I you know, I don't begrudge my cousin Mini getting some recognition. No, Marissa Tomei's great, so it's fair good. play to her. It was a good film. Yeah, so that that's my cousin Vinny. Thank you again to Erin for... Um, recommending it. It's uh, It was a nice change of pace. It wasn't heavy or doom-laden, uh, and we had a lot of fun watching it. And now for the hidden gem feature about a film that is not as well-known or as appreciated as it deserves to be. We aim to bring an overlooked and underrated film to your attention and say why this deserved to have more critical and commercial success than it got, and why you should watch it or reevaluate it. This month we're looking at a Norwegian horror comedy that was well-reviewed but not very widely seen. We'd like to see what we can do to help change that, so our hidden gem for episode 17 is Troll Hunter. So James, this was your recommendation for a hidden gem to uh, to share with the audience, so why don't you uh, why don't you introduce it to us? Yeah, so I, I saw Troll Hunter back when I first got Netflix, which must have been in 2011 or 12. 
So remember, not long after Troll Hunter was released, right? Yeah, I remember watching it, and then this is back when Netflix had like Apocalypto and shit on Netflix, back in like a real golden age for Netflix. And it just came up on my recommended. And my grandma um, lived in Norway. She married a Norwegian man, and she used to have these little Norwegian trolls. Do you remember in her living room? Yeah, she yeah. She used to have them like dotted around the fireplace and stuff like that. And they look like these kind of cute, you know, innocuous like things they're just like these wee little, wee little figurines and i thought oh and then it was on the poster it looked like one of those one of those figurines i'll give that a watch it's in norwegian so i watched it with the subtitles and it, you know it, it, like watching it was like watching my grandma's little toy dolls come to life but you know except they're not these cute little things anymore they're these massive um monsters that go about eating eating people mm. eating sheep eating anyone um but yeah it's this kind of it's kind of done like a found footage thing because it's yeah. a lot cheaper to do things like that especially for a film you know you know from norway where it's uh there's not a massive film industry over there yeah um but yeah and it's it, kind of as it, as it turns out like trolls are like this massive part of, of norse mythology aren't they they're like the they're like the giants causeway in, in irish history or or you know certain witches and 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 goblins or, or other kind of uh myths and legends in, in, in other countries folklore Trolls are like a big thing in Norway. Because when I was looking this up, I was going, this would be, obviously for the Norwegian audience, it would be what if trolls were actually real is like quite a major, in Norway, that's quite a major thing. That is, it's a fundamental part of their, of, of, of their yeah. sort of folklore as a, you know, going back hundreds and hundreds of years, right? Yeah. So, and basically it's done as these kind of university students are, um, They've basically kind of heard whispers that there's a that there are trolls in Norris. They try and follow this guy who they think's a troll hunter. It turns out he is, and it's kind of too far gone for him to kind of kid on that he's not. So he basically takes them with him because he's sick of the government, um, trying to cover it up with bear tracks and the stuff like mm-hmm. that. Like they're basically trying to cover up the troll attacks as uh, bear attacks. And he's like, "Fuck it, I'm sick of this pish. Uh, I don't get paid enough." You know. It's- and yeah, there's some funny on. scenes with him, like having to fill in expenses forms and uh, and document everything he's done after he catches a troll, right? Yeah, and it's stuff like uh, how did it die? How old was it? Was it a male or female, etc. And um, and it's it's done in a, like a really it's done in a really polished way. It's done in the sense that you know there's a lot of exposition, which is probably my only criticism of this film. It's a lot of like, oh, trolls don't do this. Trolls think like this. Blah blah. blah. And it's kind of like, you know, okay, yeah, we, we get you know, but it's it's just kind of done to pad out the kind of the world that they're trying to create and make it as believable as possible because a lot of these found footage ones are just kind of like like the Blair Witch one's terrible I like that yeah I mean found footage is like an overused technique in horror films but good examples are like this film where a there is a reason why someone's got a camera in that situation right and b the person there is a reason it's plausible that the person holding the camera can actually adequately show you what's going on because in Blair Witch, they're just walking around with a camcorder and you can't even see what's going on half the time. Yeah. Apart from a quite effective final... I, I think Blair Witch is hugely overrated. That, that final scene is like the only really good thing in the film. Yeah, the bit with the... Uh, was it the footprints, the handprints? Yeah. I can't remember. Um, but yeah, so it's... it's not like that. I don't want to spoil too much of the story. Um, it's It tries to kind of incorporate the, the, the kind of old folk lore of it, of, you know, trolls can can smell christian blood and he asks if any of them are christian and then that becomes like a kind of plot point and then um yeah when they get adding they add a new member of the crew who is muslim and they said oh i wonder if that works like christian they said i don't know let's find out i thought that was quite good as well 
Um, and yeah, it's it's. I thought it's, it was a good balance of horror and comedy, wasn't it? It was funny when it was meant to be, and it was quite you know you know edgy as seat when it was meant to be. Like, it's also not everyone's type of comedy, though, which is what I would be. It's very wrong. dry. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's, it's what I was reading is that the 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 people playing this the student TV camera crew are sort of less well known actors, although they might be more well known now because the film came out in twenty ten. Um, but some key roles are played by sort of basically a lot of the older guys in this are quite well-known co- comedians in Norway. Um, like the hunter is boss and the, and the guy who, who manages the power station. They're all quite well-known comedians. The Norwegian audience would have recognized them. Otto Jesperson, who plays the, the troll hunter himself, Hans, he's known for some pretty confrontational political comedy and satire. So there's, I think, I think there was stuff that I got and found funny in the film, but I think there's this whole level or whole layer of comedy that's really quite specific to the original Norwegian audience. Uh, yeah, totally. Uh, I would agree. It's, uh, it's. I, I can see it not being everyone's thing, but I, I quite enjoyed it. I don't know how you actually felt about it once you'd actually. Yeah, seen I, it. I did enjoy it as well. I mean, I thought it was. I, I, I did like that sort of dry humour about you know, you know. Again, sometimes when you tra- when you when you're kind of you know not well versed in that in that country's sort of background, you might miss some stuff. But I, I enjoyed the the government bureaucracy that was you know, the forms you had to fill in after he kills a troll. Um, yeah. There's this whole stuff. What you know? Why do they have massive pylons out in the Norwegian wilderness? And it's actually uh, to keep trolls in. Um, I thought there was some quite good stuff about there is the, the the balance between human activity and the natural world is breaking down. And I thought it was quite an entertaining way to show that happening. I enjoyed it. Um, I think the the special effects were as good as they needed to be. I think you know, uh, and there were some excellent. There, there were some bits where you, oh shit, they're in real trouble because the trolls here. And then there's other stuff where it's quite funny, like where he's in the suit of armor and he gets punched by the troll, <laughs> and they don't know whether he's alive or not. There's all sorts of fun stuff happening. Um, I really enjoyed it. I mean, I didn't mind the exposition because I thought it was it. I quite like it when it's a case of you start out by this is normal. This is we're just going to follow this because we think this guy is a poacher killing the bears. But he says he's a troll hunter. Is he mad? What's really going on? And 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 then not not having trolls appear immediately. I thought that worked quite well. I thought the ending was a bit rushed, um, but on the whole, I, I enjoyed it. I thought it was a decent film. I think, given that the shoestring budget they had for this film, I didn't think the CGI was too terrible. Which is yeah, I thought I thought I thought they did okay, especially for that final bit where you think, wow, that's you know, it yeah, could have been a lot worse, um, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's you know, I think my favourite fan footage film is Wreck, which is a Spanish film about yeah. a TV crew uh, getting caught in a um, uh, in a, an apartment block when this horrific outbreak goes on. But I thought this was very decent. It's sort of somewhere between fan footage and mockumentary. There was there was there was shades of District Nine in it. I thought, which is another film I like. Um, I thought it was I thought it was generally very decent. I thought it did a, I, I think it did a nice job of working for the domestic audience but working for anyone i think any anyone i think anyone can enjoy this film i just think it didn't really break out that much from its um uh original audience it came over here and was well reviewed and not that many got got to see it but i think if you you know i think i think most people would would enjoy this film i think i think it does i think it does what it set out to do really well yeah totally i, I couldn't have put it by myself so as this is definitely a hidden gem for us, you know, both both of us are recommending this. Uh, that doesn't always happen, but that's the fun of diverse opinion. 
Um, but yeah, if you fancy uh, an offbeat horror film with uh, a bit of dry Scandinavian satire in it, um, this this will hit the spot. Now for the one that got away, where we dig deeper into cinematic history for stories of potentially great films that top directors tried and failed to bring to the screen. We look at what happened, why it didn't work out, and what it might have been like if they'd been able to realise their vision. This month we discuss what could have been a classic film about ancient Greece, um, which would have been an interesting departure for its director, but it lost out to a brash comic book version of the same story. The one that got away for September is Michael Mann's Gates of Fire. So James, before I nominated this to be the one that got away, had you heard of it, um, or, or did you have to kind of you know, look into it to find out what had really gone on? No, I hadn't actually heard of it. Um, I did a little bit of reading into it, and it, ancient Greek stuff sounds like my thing. So it's another one of those ones you're like, oh, for fuck's sake, it definitely is one that got away. Um, yeah, I do like Michael Mann as well. I think he's done some good stuff. Yeah. So in terms of a sort of a background to this. Uh, <laughs> When Gladiator came out in in the year two thousand, it was a big hit. It won Oscars. Um, it uh, it showcased the, the, the ability of a director like Ridley Scott to match his vision to you know bring in a, a you know a, a world to life in a way that had never never really been achieved before, even in some of the great kind of you know biblical and ancient epics. Um, and as a result. Um, in the early 2000s, it was quite a popular thing for the studios to um, to have a go at, at sort of epics set in ancient history. And Gladiator's ancient Rome, but obviously there's a lot of great stories from ancient Greece, which is why um, Troy was greenlit, the, the the historical big historical epic with Brad Pitt about the, the Trojan War, uh, and Alexander, which was Oliver Stone's film about... Um, Alexander the Great. And those films obviously met with mixed success. Um, but it, this was at a time when Hollywood was looking for these things. And I think that's a good reason why um, this film was greenlit as well. Now, Gates of Fire was a historical novel that came out in the late 90s um, and did very well and was optioned for um, uh, for film production. George Clooney's um, production company was involved. He was really interested in doing this. Uh, and Michael Mann was attached because he really fancied the challenge of doing it. And for the benefit of the audience, Gates of Fire was a novel about the 300 Spartans who, um, at the Battle of Thermopylae, 300 Spartans plus some other actually supporting soldiers, as it goes, um, defended um, the a pass into Greece uh, against an enormous Persian army and, and helped stop the invasion of Greece by the Persian Empire. And it's believed to be the reason why Greece, you know, as a set of nation states survived and the, the democracy that Europe built in the future was, uh, was preserved by this, no disrespect to the Persian empire, but you know, things, things pan out in certain ways. And, and this is how this one panned out. Um, now that story probably sounds quite familiar because it, it ended up being made in the Zack Snyder film 300, but uh, 300 was a much more comic book version of this story. I don't know if you've seen, you must've seen 300, mate. I don't know what you thought of it. I've seen 300. It's, again, like I said, I love ancient Greek and ancient Roman and ancient anything like kind of Norse and stuff like that. So I, I enjoyed the actual content of the story. I just, it was, I I think that's why I kind of for, 
forgave how badly done it is because it's that Zack Schneider dark gritty you can't see anything lots of shouting and lots of six packs kind of style of it um, which I just couldn't be arsed with but yeah. um, the, the, the actual is- the, sorry the actual content of the story is interesting I know they embellish it with 300 Spartans but they actually met up with like another 10,000 people yeah, um, I think I think in the end there was about two or three thousand people. I mean, yeah. they're still massively over over you know overmatched by like two hundred thousand yeah, Persian soldiers. It's, it's still an immensely it's the a, drama of the story is there. Yeah, it's a great story, and Michael Mann would have done done better with it than um, Zack Snyder did, in my opinion. And the the, the sequel to Three Hundred is also shit. It kind of takes a more uh, closer look at the naval kind of side of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, anything like that is always really interesting. I mean, you know. Anything about no, anything about you know ancient Greek stuff, which I don't actually feel like there's a, enough of. There's a lot of Roman stuff, a lot of bad Roman stuff. There's not a lot of um, Norse stuff either. The only stuff that people probably have access to in terms of ancient gods would be um, the kind of Thor series, and that doesn't really follow the actual yeah. mythology of it all. Um, yeah, and a lot of ancient Greek films were done back when filmmaking styles and special effects uh, they dated very badly none of them stand up today very well unless you like a bit of ray harryhausen yeah um stop motion effects and they tend to be a lot more about the greek myths like jason and the argonauts and everything whereas this would have been about actual ancient greek history i'm the same as you i mean i think we talked about how alexander was a massive missed opportunity that oh, could have been an amazing been film amazing yeah the treatment of it was just so flawed but even then Seeing the Greek army arrive in Babylon and seeing the Hanging Gardens of Babylon in film, in like a big budget film that can afford to really show it off well, there are some amazing scenes in Alexander that makes you kind of even more regretful that that wasn't a better film and that a film like Date Gates of Fire didn't get made. The choice of having them speak in Irish accents, if they just, Colin Farrell could easily do an English accent. I genuinely think that would make the film a lot better and a lot more palatable than it actually is. And it's not even a big thing to do. Yeah, it's yeah. There, there are a number of missteps in Alexander. I mean, as far as Gates of Fire is concerned, well, let, let's go back to three hundred. I mean, I I really I can't deny that three hundred is kind of excitingly made. I mean, Zack Snyder does often make films quite exciting to, to look at, um, and obviously it's not historically accurate. And a lot of people say, well, they're making a film; it's not historically accurate. Gladiator is not historically accurate. The thing that really pissed me off about three hundred is that the whole thing is boiled down into this kind of masturbatory fantasy that essentially is what drives most Trump supporters that um, we should all kind of bow down and fetishize um, these militaristic people who don't care about anything except fighting because they're the only ones keeping you safe. So fuck you if you read books, fuck you if you actually want to have diplomacy and peace, fuck you if you're anything other than some woodsman who does nothing but kind of throw spears or, or own 15 fucking assault rifles. Uh, and Frank Miller, the writer of the of, of the original kind of uh, graphic novel, this is based on, is guilty of exactly the same shit all the time. He did a um, he did a later comic book about superheroes fighting the Taliban, and you can imagine how that uh, how that portrayed the the, the nuanced um, complexities of the Middle East uh, and its treatment. Uh, and that's one of the things that bothers me about Three Hundred. Anyone who's not a Spartan and anyone who's not sitting there, kind of you know, abusing their children until they're good at being a soldier. Um, is a traitor. Anyone who's like uh, learned and you know wants to get involved in the political process, and that just really pisses me off. I, I don't need propaganda for that sort of very one-eyed version of the American way, which most Americans don't even agree with either. Um, so, at, at the ex- at the risk of getting into a rant, it's one thing for a film to be historically um, inaccurate. It's another thing for a film to be a, a piece of 
Islamophobic propaganda made by arseholes. Um, and I think it does a great disservice to a story which is actually more interesting and has a lot more to it than we got to see. Um, so I'll just take a breath and try to get less angry. Um, but yeah, the, the interesting thing about this is that the um, the novel itself is takes a slightly interesting view of this. It's set after the events of the Battle of Thermopylae, and it is a prisoner of war. There's been one survivor that they actually find at the bottom of a, a pile of bodies. He's, he's barely alive, and the Persians nurse him back to health because they're so baffled by what the Spartans have just done to them. They want to know what happened and how it happened. Uh, so he's he's nursed back to health and is a prisoner of the Persian king, uh, Xerxes, and asked to tell them everything he knows about the Spartans and how they did it. So then the rest of the story is told in flashback about him, this young character, and how he kind of came to Sparta from somewhere else and kind of got imbued in their culture and how Sparta built this army and how Sparta fought the um uh, you know, came to fight the, the Persians in the way that they did. So it enables you to kind of see the way the world was built. It enables you to kind of learn about the, the lives of the people that that, that the Spartans were protecting. Uh, and the novel is really vivid. It's brilliant. It's got, um, uh, it's uh, it, it tells you a lot about the day-to-day life of, of, uh, of the Greeks and how they lived in fear of being invaded. And that's why they had people who, who you know, needed to kind of be so good at fighting because if you didn't, you know, someone's going to take your lunch money, do you know what I mean? And then burn your house down, right? So, and then it goes into how Sparta kind of built the world that it built. So, you, you know, it, it's it's made for someone who loves period detail and and strong characters to kind of bring this world to life. And I think that's why Michael Mann wanted to do it. I mean, this is done, this is like not long after 2000. So, as I recall, Michael Mann came back, came on the back of The Insider, which did well at the Oscars and everything. Um and then he did Ali, um, and he was hoping for this to be his next film after Ali, but there were production delays, um, their trouble getting the script right. And I think in 2004, he went, right, I'm going to go and do Collateral because I don't want to just sit and not do a film. And Collateral's a terrific film, by the way. And then shortly after that, he 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 basically cut bait and said, I can't do this, We you know, we can't agree anything. Um, so we're going to, um, you know, he's going to leave and, and the, uh, it sort of sat around waiting for someone to kind of make it happen. Uh, by which time 300 solar march on them fair and square, you know, other people were interested in doing stories based on ancient Greece and, and Frank Miller's comic book, despite my reservations about it was very popular. So they made a film about 300 Spartans based on, on that story instead. Um, so it was at the time it just went, well, no one's going to. No one's going to spend the kind of money this needs on another film about the same story right now. Uh, so it didn't happen then. Whether it happens ever again in the future is a is another story, you know? Yeah, that's the problem you have with it, is that it's very rare you get films come out even the same year that are, you know, even remotely similar in story. I mean, it's strange that two Robin Hood films came out in the 90s and White House Down and Olympus Has Fallen came out pretty yeah. uh, close to each other. And White House Down apparently is the better film. I've not bothered to watch either of them. But apparently White House Down is the better one with um, Channing Tatum. But, but, because the but it, but it suffered because out. the first one came out first, right? Yeah. Um, so Yeah, and this is the thing. I mean, I think if, if both films had actually come out at the same time, you could you, they could have had a straight fight, right? Do you know yeah. what I mean? If they if they'd started production and, and they brought it out and the people who said Gates of Fire said, look, we've based this on a on a historical novel that's much more kind of gives you much more of a real view of what things were like. It's a it's, it's an epic by Michael Mann. 
uh, we think this is a better version of the story. You have a straight fight and the audience tells you what they think, right? But once one of those films gets made and the other one is just waiting to get made, it doesn't happen. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because 300 got made and got filmed, at that point no one's going to spend $100 million on, on another version of the same story. It would only have had any chance if, the, if, if this film was already underway when they heard that 300 was happening, right? Yeah, no, I totally agree. Because that, that's, that's how the, the way things go. So, I mean, in terms of the... Um, in terms of some of the reasons why it might have struggled is that there are one or two kind of challenging aspects of this story. I mean, the Spartans were fascists, um, but in the context of 480 BC, what are you going to do, right? Fascism is a Roman term because a lot of people in ancient Rome were fascists. Um, it, the, the main, you know, the thing about it back then is it's, you know, government and people's, you know, attitudes to authority and attitudes to, to, to rulers and, and, and being governed were different back then. But it's, you know, it's a it's a complex um, world to try and do seriously. And 300 was able to bypass that by just going, we're just talking about, you know, Gerard Butler um, and his and his abs. We don't really care about the, you know, we'll just show you how heroic they all were. But if you want to do yeah. a film about the ins and outs of their society, it's, you know, it's a little more tricky to do. Um, they encouraged um, homosexual relations between older and younger um, you know, the, the young recruits and the older soldiers because they felt it bonded them. And that's just not something that a big studio film is going to address. But also um, in the would, film, they, they kind of make out the folk, the folk from Athens are basically homosexuals for not wanting to fight. That's kind of inferred, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And that's, yeah, that's and the kind like of, that. yeah, that's the kind of bullshit that, that Frank Miller likes to, to you know, to do um, in, in his stories. Um, and, but obviously it's it's problematic to have you know to be encouraging relations between an older authority figure and a young you know you know callow new recruit who's not really got as much say in the matter as they should do you know what i mean yeah so a modern audience might struggle with that and also the fact that a modern studio doesn't want to portray that in films i mean i don't know if you read this the other day but actually the studio tried to try to cut the bit in skyfall where um Javier Bardem and and, and Daniel Craig sort of flirt with each other a little bit really they said, oh, no, we can't have that gay stuff in a Bond film. And the producer said, fuck off, we'll do what we want. Um, because <laughs> what's the problem? Do you know what I mean? A, it's Daniel Craig's character. It's James Bond kind of trying to show Javier Bardem's character that he's not um, intimidated by what he's saying. And B, what would be the problem if James Bond had had to do something like that for the mission? It's like, it's, you know, it's, it is what it is. Don't be a dick. Yeah. Um, but when when the studio is that sensitive about something like that, I, I just can't imagine them um, being too keen on some of the the details of this film. And when when a film is expensive, you, you get you, it's harder to ignore what the studio is telling you. You know what I mean? No, um, totally. The other problem that they had is that they they went through several versions of the script, and you can't. I, well, I couldn't get a hold of a copy of the script, which is what I, which I sometimes like to do on these things, but. I was able to find <clears throat> online reviews of the script by people who got hold of a copy. And they all kind of said that having a central character who's essentially an observer kind of didn't work as well dramatically as, 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 as it, as you'd want a film like this to do, because the, the, uh, Zio, the, the character that, that is recounting all of this to the, the, the King of Persia, um, is, He's there. He's involved. He's trained. He's in Sparta. He's 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 from families that had been you know sacked and attacked by external rulers before. But it, it worked fine in the book because he's essentially the narrator telling you all the stuff that happened. But as a central character, he's a bit passive. Um, and I think they were trying to solve that story problem. Um, 
for me, I think the story problem would have been better for them to transfer it to one or two of the other characters in the book um, who are more active parts of the um, uh, the story. You could still have the narrator, yeah, um, but I think you'd have had to restructure the story for the purposes of the film, and they hadn't quite cracked that nut when um, you know Michael Mann quit the project and then they 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 kind of lost out to another production. So had they made that film, I think they would have changed the the emphasis of the story onto a different main character. They'd have had to work out how they captured some of those uh, some of those things. Other than that, in terms of trying to see what this film would have been like, I think. Um, it would have been less reliant on CGI, I think, than uh, than 300 was. I think the balance between CGI and live action would have been more like something like Gladiator, in yeah. which most of this is done by real people, but the CGI is used to like recreate. Use a CGI where you can't physically yeah. have the live action. Yeah, I mean, because if you go to Thermopylae now, it's got a motorway running through it. Huh. Because in th- because in 3,000 years, Greece is going to try and get, is going to even Greece is going to build some shit, right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, you would have to, you would have to do e- extensive work to recreate a lot of the original world, not to mention, you know, uh, whole cities and, and, and towns and, and armies and things. Um, I mean, like you, I like Michael Mann and I would have liked to have seen this happen. It does, it does beg the question though. Sometimes the idea of Michael Mann is better than the reality. So, I mean, I'm being devil's advocate for a second. I mean, the only period film that he's done that has like battle scenes and this kind of action has lasted the Mohicans. And that was quite early in his career. Yeah. And, and since then he, he moved into much more kind of deliberately paced kind of films that um, things like heat and the insider and Ali, they focused on like one character in a lot of ways or a small number of characters and, and told that story in a lot of great detail. I'm, you know, and, and, and since Collateral, I've not been that keen on any of the films that he's done. I mean, it could be that this story and all the things it needed to contain is just what Michael Mann needed to marry what he's good at with a story that, that, that fits him. Um, so maybe it's unfair to look at how Miami Vice and Public Enemies turned out. So I think they're both, you know, weak films in, in his in his filmography. And I wouldn't have been keen on, on three hours of, of yet another Michael Mann story about a brooding main character who's kind of silently deciding what he's going to do next um which is what which is what michael mann's like when he's off form do you know what i mean but if he if he brought some of the you know in intensity and excitement of the bat the high scenes in heat heat the battle scenes the last of the mohicans um uh and you know some of the some of the action in collateral i mean i'm sure he could have made it really exciting um interesting that bruce willis was lobbying for a role in this film I don't know who he would have played. Um, well, I mean, I'm sure he'd have wanted to play, a, a, you know, one of the heroic characters. It's an interesting thing with Bruce Willis is that some some of the reasons why people don't, you know, are less keen on the films he's done in the last kind of 10, 15 years is that he doesn't seem to give a shit. Um, and when Bruce Willis is actually lobbying and, you know, knocking on the director's door and, or the producer's door and begging for a part in a film, you're going to get a very motivated Bruce Willis, and, and that's when he's done some of his best work. I just... Yeah. I can't see him as an ancient character. Do you know what I mean? You know, there are some actors that you can kind of go. Yeah. yeah, It's like Michael Douglas and people like that. You can't quite see them in, in, in roles um, that that aren't contemporary, but you know, I mean, George Clooney, I think just more wanted to um, uh, be involved in the production of the film. There's no indication that he wanted to act in it. Although I imagine he could have pulled it off, pulled something like that off if he wanted. Um, In terms of what it would look like, I mean, 
Alexander and Troy are probably the best contemporary examples of what a film like this would look like. I mean, they came out in that era. They're set in the ancient Greek period. So in terms of the weaponry, the hair, the costumes, the the cities that they live in, I mean, I think that's the best indication of kind of roughly what it would look like. And obviously 300 has kind of scenes of like the Greek Senate and kind of the Spartan, you know, towns and villages and everything. Not that they're hugely um, uh, uh, accurate. But I think what you'd be looking at is, is something in the style of Troy or Alexander, but um, with the battle intensity of uh, of three hundred and the, the 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 battle scenes in the original novel are massively epic. I mean, it's the last kind of the, the last third of the book is the battle. So I think the film would have had you know a, a, a lot of that intensity to it. Um, yeah, I'm sorry this film didn't get made. I mean, there's no reason it can't get made now. I mean, three hundred wasn't the first film about um, that that story. There was a film called The 300 Spartans back in the 60s. So if enough time passes, someone could have another crack at this. Uh, but I haven't heard anything about anyone being interested in doing it more recently. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, just, just depends whether the interest is there, like you say. Yeah, so that that's our one that got away for this uh, for this month. It sounds like a potentially interesting film that that we're sorry we missed out on. Uh, we do have listeners who are more than happy what they've got in three hundred, so it wouldn't have been for everyone. But for people who like a an epic that really brings the ancient world to life, I think that's what this would have done. And I'm I'm sorry we didn't get to see it. We close the first route of the episode with the remake Hate Watch. This is where we relax our usual calm and balanced approach to our film discussions and rant at the lack of originality in the Hollywood boardroom. Whether they call it a remake, a reboot, a reimagining, we don't like it and we want it to stop. There are, of course, examples of good remakes when they are justified and well done. This feature doesn't discuss those films. What we look at here are remakes that disrespected the memory of a film that they should have left well alone. This month we're taking a slightly different approach, though, as we've selected a film for the feature that we hadn't seen before. So we don't know how, how much of a hate watch this was going to be before we go into the podcast. The remake, maybe hate watch for episode 17, is Ben Wheatley's 2020 version of Hitchcock's 1940 original, Rebecca. So James, what's your relationship to these two films? Right, so I think this remake hate watch isn't actually necessarily whether this film is bad, because I watched the first 10 minutes of this film and just turned off because I couldn't be fucked with it. The only reason I couldn't be fucked with it is because I didn't like the original. I didn't like the the Hitchcock version. I remember watching my mum. My mum, I think my mum looked fondly on it because it was like a kind of film that she'd watch when she was young, and it's like, you know, it's a kind of nostalgia point of view for her, but I just thought it was fucking boring. So I just kind of I kind of don't think this film this film could be very good. It could be absolutely magnificent. Army Hammer and what's her name, Lily Collins, Lily James, Lily James could have. Yeah, put I always in, get the I always get the Lilies yeah, mixed up. They could have put in the performances of their careers, and we I just don't know it. The problem I have with the, this remake, Hate Watch, is that they go, oh, what about when Kubrick made this film? What about when Hitchcock made this? One? Why don't we do a little spin on? Why don't we do this? And it's just you know kind of living off the back of someone else's work. There is a, there is a good chance when an absolute master has already done a story that there's it's already as good as it's ever going to be, and the fact that you didn't like it is probably because it's not not a story that's going to grab you. And someone less established trying the same thing is the law of diminishing returns is almost inevitable, isn't it? Yeah. So it's it seems like they just made this like oh remember when Hitchcock made this film we can make a few quick quid by uh, making the exact same fucking film Disney did it with all the the Disney are doing it right now with their live action stuff. 
They've mm-hmm. only made this film because, oh, Hitchcock made Rebecca back in 19, when was it, 1937 or something ridiculous? 19, yeah, not, yeah, not yeah, about then, 1940, yeah. Yeah, so... So, yeah, I mean, I'm my view on this is that there actually does come a point where even a, an, an absolutely classic film, if it's made so long ago that, you know, the you know film techniques have moved on, yeah, um, and perhaps the level of censorship that was around at the time meant you couldn't do a story justice back then, especially if the film's got any kind of sexual subtext um, or, uh, or, the, or you know, uh, violence or, you know, any anything like that. Often those films can be really toned down originally and, and actually could deserve a second treatment. But there still needs to be some mileage left in the story. I mean, a good example would be Scarface. The 1930 version of Scarface is absolute classic um, of gangster films of the era, right? It's a brilliant film, a brilliant, brilliant film, okay? So you you remake that at your peril. However, in in the 50 years between that film and, and the second film, a couple of things happened. First of all, the um, what you're allowed to show in a film has changed, and the way in which the, 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 co- the context around organized crime is much better understood. So there's a justification in making the new Scarface. Uh, secondly, um, there was a... a Scarface captured in 1932 the phenomenon around gangsters getting rich off prohibition. And I think it was an interesting take on the story to show the same storyline about gangsters getting rich off cocaine, which was the new kind of thing that everyone in the Western world or loads of people in the Western world were taking. There's a huge demand, a huge amount of money to be made. And it's not surprising that a lot of, you know, really nasty gangsters went and made money off the back of that. There you go. There's an example to remake a classic old film in the modern era. So the, really the question is, is whether there's any mileage left in the original Rebecca story. Um, and for you, there wasn't, because you didn't like the original that much. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it could be fun, but the thing is, if, if you enjoy the first one, that's fine. You're, you're allowed to like a certain film. I'm not going to tell you what film you can and can't like. I'm going to recommend yeah. films that I like and films that I would hope other people would enjoy as well. But what I disagree with is like, oh, Hitchcock made a film back in the 40s. Let's make it because people still remember Hitchcock and how classic he was. And you're not doing anything interesting. Make an original yeah. film. Don't just take a fucking film that was successful back in the day because it was done by someone successful. It was, it made a lot of money back then. You're trying to live off the fucking, was it the tailcoats or something like that? I can't remember the exact expression. But you're Co- coattails, yeah. Coattails, that's it. You're living off the coattails of somebody else's success. Just make a fucking original film. It's, I mean, exactly right. So... So I went. I went into this with a very similar attitude to that. I mean, I quite like the original. Although I, I, I must say, I like later Hitchcock better when he started to delve deeper into sort of the the, the the dark themes that he's obviously trying to do in Rebecca. He's able to do much more in something like Vertigo, um, which is why I kind of like some of those later films better. Um, and like you, there's got to be a really good reason for doing the new film, rather than just saying Rebecca, something's heard of. So Rebecca is something people have heard of. Hitchcock is someone people have heard of. Let's piggyback on that, right? So I, I went into this film with that kind of suspicion, and I, I you know, I, I watched the whole thing. Um, for the benefit of the audience, just to give it a bit of background, Rebecca was a, a, a very successful novel in the, in the mid to late 30s by Daphne du Maurier, um, and it was almost immediately optioned by Hollywood, uh, the big producer David O. Selznick. Um, in the late 30s, Selznick hired Hitchcock. He brought Hitchcock over from the U.K., to have a crack at Hollywood, which Hitchcock had always wanted to do. He wanted to work where, you know, the highest standards of filmmaking technically and everything else and all the resources were going to be available to him. So Hitchcock was doing this film because he was he wanted, he was getting his big shot in Hollywood. But Selznick was the producer calling the shots. Um, 
The book itself was seen as a romance with dark and dramatic themes, but Daphne du Maurier herself saw it as a much more darker, more gothic uh, book. It's not really about the romance. It's about jealousy. It's about being trapped in a marriage. It's about society's restrictions on women and, and, and sexuality. Um, the basic story is an orphaned young woman who's a paid assistant slash traveling companion to a rather unpleasant rich woman uh, finds herself in the south of France uh, where the rich recently widowed Maxim de Winter is taking some time away from home because his wife died about a year before the start of the story. This young woman never gets a name of her, her own. She falls in love with Maxim and they marry and she's referred to thenceforth as Mrs. de Winter or the second Mrs. de Winter. They go back to the family home Manderley where the house is full of the presence of the dead wife preserved by the sinister housekeeper, Mrs. Danvers, who loves the old wife and hates the new one. Mrs. De Winter feels like she's never going to get out of the shadow of Rebecca, the first wife, and her husband is a troubled man and full of secrets. And then all those secrets come out and everything gets very emotional and gothic. Um, the Hitchcock film is very f famous. It was a hit. It won the Best Picture Oscar. It's been done as a TV miniseries a couple of times, uh, one of which in the 90s is really well well thought of and I think is probably the best version of the story. Um, and I agree with you, James, that the original is quite, it's quite melodramatic. It doesn't hold up as well as a lot of other Hitchcock stuff. Frankly, if it wasn't Hitchcock's US debut, we wouldn't still be discussing it today. Um, Hitchcock uses the film as an opportunity to, you know, master the techniques of film. Yeah. And he's, he was always quite big on making films for a female audience. This is obviously a, a story for a female audience, the way it's made. Um, but there's a lot of other films from that area that don't get discussed uh, in the same breath. Unless you're a proper film buff, you won't know much about Mrs. Miniver, Now Voyager, or Mildred Pierce, which are films with a similar theme from back then. Um, I mean, for me, I mean, I like Ben Wheatley, the director, and I was ready to like this if he did something fresh with the story. I think it's fair to say that the the, the original storyline was really toned down for the 1940 audience because the censor wouldn't let you get away with a lot of what's in the book. And Daphne du Maurier herself had to turn down a lot of what she was putting in the book. She was wrestling with some stuff. She was either bisexual or gay or possibly even non-binary. She had huge feelings of jealousy towards her husband's ex-fiancé. Um, she was wrestling with a lot of stuff in her life, and this, this book was a way of expressing that. So there's stuff in there that wasn't done in the original film because it couldn't be. Hitchcock would have loved to have done a full-on version of this story, but wasn't allowed to by the censors. Um, so someone like Ben Wheatley having a crack at this, I was prepared to I was prepared to give it a chance um because Ben Wheatley's a horror director he's very good at creating a kind of very tense atmosphere of people kind of losing their minds I thought yeah good go for it let's see what he does with that when he did stuff like Kill List uh, and A Field in England and, and and High Rise I could see him doing something interesting with a story um sadly um I have to report James that you probably did the right thing turning it off same film isn't it it's the same fucking film well, the, interestingly, it's the it's the same film, but but it's it, in an odd way, it's kind of more tame than Hitchcock's version. Great. Because Army Hammer's Maxim Winter is he's quite a nice guy. I mean, he's 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 keeping stuff from his wife, and he's got a lot of weaknesses. And and the more things go on, you know, the more it turns out that you know the the you know that Mrs. De Winter has been been kind of lulled into this horrific situation, but he himself is quite nice. He's quite attractive. You can see why they get together. It's, it feels like a Sunday afternoon romantic drama, really. Right. It doesn't have, it doesn't have the, the, the original film's got a lot of tension and this didn't have as much tension. Um, I, I get the feeling that Ben Wheatley 
kind of was told by Netflix that they wanted to do a version of Rebecca and they wanted it to look nice. And they, they love period dramas with, with English accents and, and English actors looking, you know, looking nice in, in old costumes uh, and to toe the line and do the film. And as far as he was concerned, he said, well, he's going to deliver the film. It's going to work um, with a beginning, a middle and an end. And it's going to give them what they want because in the industry that will gain him some, some credibility to make more of the films he wants to make. But he, it doesn't feel like he's, really putting anything of himself into the film. It's, yeah. um, it's, and, and in the end you get to the end and you go, Oh, well, that's what happened. Whereas at least in, at least in the first film, it's a very hokey story, the way they do it in the original. It's a very kind of, you know, um, you know, it's not exactly feminist in the way it portrays women or anything like that, but it, at least, you know, at least it's got a certain kind of, um, grip to the way the, the central character is kind of, you know, spends most of the time terrified you just don't get the same. You just don't get any of that in this this film. And there was there was an opportunity to really dig into the the obsessions because th- this is a film about jealousy. This woman is hugely jealous of of a dead ex wife, not yeah. ex wife, a, a, a husband's dead wife. She feels like she's not you know experienced enough to satisfy her husband. She feels like she's losing a husband. She feels like that she's surrounded by people that hate her. There's all sorts of stuff that you could properly dig into, and it was all just a bit. It was a slightly edgier episode of Downton Abbey in a lot of ways, and I can't say that anyone did a bad job. It just wasn't. It just didn't reach out and grab you by the throat the way it possibly could have done. Mm. Um, there's a lot of subtext in the original book that I think would have been a lot more that they could have done more with, which they didn't. And in the end, Netflix delivered another well-made, you know, well-budgeted but not hugely interesting film. Which I think is a bit of an Achilles' heel for Netflix. I think it's good when they when, when they put up the money for a director like Spike Lee or or, or, or um or Scorsese, notwithstanding our reservations about the Irishman. You know, when they're when they're when they're the ones putting up the money that no one else will do for interesting filmmakers, that's great. But a lot of their Netflix originals are just in one ear out the other. Yeah, but at least the I, five I don't think they put and, into- But at least the Five Bloods and the Irishman were interesting. The Five Bloods was yeah. fucking great. I loved The Five Bloods. Yeah, I thought I thought it was I thought it was amazing. And really, Spike Lee's made that film because Netflix gave him the money to make it, mm-hmm. and you, you, you pat Netflix on the back for giving an interesting filmmaker and the money to make the film they want to make. I I just I just wonder why Netflix don't use the same approach in some of exactly, their exactly so called originals. The, the Irishman, while we thought it would have Robert De Niro playing the old character and then have someone young playing Robert De Niro, like they did with Godfather Part Two, kind of thing. Yeah, but. With um, the only thing I didn't like about the, the Irishman specifically was that Martin Scorsese did nothing but slag off Netflix and then slag off um, Marvel, Marvel from uh, being not being cinematic. But then he's gone into a fucking streaming company, which is the opposite of going to the cinema. But anyway, that's just we've mentioned. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there was there was, in, there was interesting stuff. I mean, there's like the 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 world of Jimmy Hoffa and the unions and the, and and the U, people in the union struggling with you know, political, op- I mean, the way the American government treats unions is despicable. And then the only, only place they had to turn was organized crime. Yeah, no, that, that's, it's, it's, it's a tragedy. And there's a lot of interesting stuff in that story, but that's sort of by um, the way. So it's an, it's like, it's a, yeah. it's a, an original story. It was not, maybe not an original story, but it's an interesting story that people might have not heard of. Mm-hmm. And instead Netflix, let's throw a lot of money at Ben Wheatley doing a story that was already made 80 years ago. You know, it's like oh, great. But that, cool. that's the thing, though. If they if they contact someone like Ben Wheatley, or, or they or they they get or, or or somebody, if someone if someone turns up and says, "I've got a really interesting take on this story that's worth doing," yeah, the way 
Brian De Palma and Oliver Stone did with Scarface, the way John Carpenter did with The Thing. Those are two classic films that only a very brave and you know skilled enough filmmaker is going to get away with remaking. If someone comes to, and even if it's a remake, it's got a genuine vision from a filmmaker, um, and Netflix is the one who says, well, I'll tell you what, that sounds interesting, we'll support it. Do you know what I mean? Exactly. Or if Netflix says, we want to increase our roster of original content, let's make a film that really stands up against anybody else's. Do you know what I mean? And I think that's when Netflix is falling down because firstly, they should, they should show their films more in the cinema because it's like, it's like saying I've, I've made the fastest racing car, but I'm only going to show it on the test track. I'm not going to put it up in a big race against another car. Put your fucking product out there and see how it stands up against everyone else's. Do you know what I mean? Because I, th- I think that's how good films get made. The, the, the need for a competitive edge, the need to say this film went out in cinemas and was put in front of an audience like all the others, and this is the reaction it got. That is a tension that filmmakers need and film production companies need to make these films last. Because a lot of times they go, oh, well, we made it. You know, over time, it will get streamed enough times and uh, and that, and and it'll probably make its money back. Put your fucking heart and soul into it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Or if Ben Wheat, or if you're going to give Ben Wheat, Ben Wheatley eighteen million pounds, which is more than he's ever had to make a film, to do something, ask him what he wants to make. Do you know what I mean? Or sit in with a producer and turn what Ben Wheatley wants to make into something that's going to justify that budget, and put Netflix's name to something that's really worth seeing. Um, I mean, I, there's a lot of things I like about the Netflix um, model, and I'm, I'm, you know, they do seem to be funding things a lot of people aren't funding, but they do put out a lot of absolutely fucking bog standard stuff that really doesn't justify the money. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. There's, we, we've said it before, whether it's coming to this or any of other the other franchises that seem to get piggybacked at the moment for whether it's tokenism or financial gain. Just make an original story and people will watch it. You will get your yeah. trailer on Netflix and people will watch it. It's ridiculous. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, this is this is an example. I would say of um, it's a redundant remake because none of the people involved had a had anything new to say, uh, and it, it's it's partly a missed opportunity. And you could either say it's a missed opportunity because you could have done more with that story, or it's a missed opportunity because you could have given um, uh, you could have given that money and that time and that cast something more original to do. Um, and I can't say it was terrible, but. I will probably have forgotten all about this film in a, in a, in a month or two because it, it just didn't stand out. Yeah, shame, really. We're going to take an intermission now. Sorry for interrupting the flow. The second reel of the podcast is available to download now, and we hope you will rejoin us soon for the exciting conclusion of this month's episode. When you do, we'll be taking on the big conversation. This month, we're discussing the worst films by some of our favourite directors. That's all for the first reel of this month's episode of the Double Reel Film Podcast. This podcast is edited on Audacity and hosted on Anchor FM, and we are grateful for their continued support. The music was Mistake the Getaway by Kevin MacLeod. We'll give you a full set of credits at the end of reel two of the episode, including info on the films and topics we discussed. Look forward to joining you for the second reel soon. See you on the other side. We live Let's and let... die for that inch. <laughs> <laughs> Hoo-ah! I know that's the wrong film, but... <laughs>